0: Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Luke chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 862, uh, 863. We're going to read verses 12 through 19 and then verse 40. 12 through 19 and verse 40. Beloved saints, uh, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. In these days he went up to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, And Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And now down to verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And this ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask God's blessing on our time in this passage. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears. In doubts, we ask that you would flood that darkness with the light of your grace and peace, and that you would open our minds to your truth, that you would grant us hope and grant us faith. We ask that you would increase our understanding and allow us to receive you in and through your word, that you would let your love shine through the pages of your scripture, that your spirit would be with us as we read and hear. May he grant us that we might deliver And that we might delight in all that we encounter in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I hate passages like this, and that's mostly because I hate having my weaknesses exposed. Uh, It hurts my pride and it shatters those false conceptions that I've built about myself, about how mature of a Christian I am, how much growth I've seen in my Christian life. Because with one simple verse, I see how far short I fall, how weak I am, and how distant I am from the goal of fullness and perfection. My pride My my arrogance is slain in six simple little words. All night, he continued in prayer. (laughs) I feel like a a success if I can sleep through the night. But I've never prayed through the night. I've never even come close. If I'm honest, my prayer life is... Abysmal, it's shameful. And that should tell you something about me. That I'm entirely too self reliant. And that I struggle to admit my need and to ask for help, whether that's from others or from God. And all that means is that I'm self deceived. Because it's not that I don't have need, it's that I don't admit and acknowledge that need. The reason I don't pray more is because I struggle and I'm unwilling to admit my need. I think there's another reason. I think I don't pray more because I fear surrendering to God's plans. Prayer ultimately seeks for God's will to be done. Prayer pursues God's priorities above our own, and that's hard. Maybe if I seek God's priorities, I'll see just how out of whack mine are. I'll see how many of my pursuits, my desires have taken God's rightful place in my heart. I'll see that they've become idols. If I ask God to change me and transform me and make me more like Jesus, what might he ask me to give up? And maybe it's just me, or maybe you have your own struggles. With prayer So what could it be that drove our Lord to pray all night long? We know from the passage he was about to choose the, the 12 apostles. and the Bible says that, that they, along with the prophets before them, are the foundation upon which the church is built. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He was about to choose the men to whom he would entrust the church when he returned to heaven. Those who would lead this fledgling work, those who would set the example, those who would be tasked with training the next generation of leaders. It would be an understatement to say this was sort of important. And so he prayed. He sought wisdom. He sought guidance. Prayer is that great act of surrender, not my will, but your will be done. Because it's the church. It's that place where we're meant to learn how to surrender. It's that place where we're meant to learn what it means to decrease so that Christ might increase. It's that place where we're meant to learn how to die to self and live to Jesus. How could it begin in anything except a great act of surrender? And that's really what our passage is about today, the church. It's, it's a story of the church. And as such, it, it will tell us about the church's uh purpose and character but really it's not our story so much as it's god's story a tale of what he is doing and where he is taking us because the church is his church and so as we look at this passage today i i I want to drive home this point the church is a messy place but it's where the power of Jesus is found in the process of discipleship, and I'll try to explain all of that from the passage, but that's really what we want to see. It's messy and that's okay because it's where we find Jesus powerfully at work in transforming us as his disciples uh, to see that we want to return to a theme the theme of discipleship which which we saw in chapter five uh, we saw that how it was characterized, uh, laying down our lives and being raised by Jesus to something new. That was a characterization. Today, I want to define it more. Uh, and then we want to see how the calling of the 12 apostles teaches us about the nature of the church and the leaders within it. And then finally, I'd like to close making a few reflections on both the messiness of the church and the power that characterizes it. That's really my hope this morning as we look at uh, this beautiful and humbling passage. Uh, Perhaps a good place to start is to talk about um, our goal in life. Where are we headed? What's the hope? Uh, What's the end goal? What do we hope to accomplish? Uh, And there might be many things we hope to accomplish, uh, but which one is most important? Because that's the destination, that's where you're headed. That's, that's what you're aiming at. And everybody has a destination, a great goal, a chief goal. For some, it's success, maybe a legacy. Others, it might be power, uh, whether that's political or uh, personal power. Some, it might be a life of comfort, free from struggles and affliction. For others, it could be health, good health. A long life, to see how long they can live, to put grave, the grave off as long as absolutely possible. Or it could just be to have a big happy family. Uh, and it's not that uh, these things in the right way are bad. Uh, money and, and careers and family and health and longevity, these are good things. The problem is when they become more important than God. That's when they become dangerous. When you subordinate God to your desires, they have become unhealthy and dangerous. They have become your destination, your your goal in life. Now, of course, none of us likes to admit when this happens, even to ourselves. And so how can we get an honest answer? I think the the way is to ask questions like this. What scares you the most? And what do you spend your time on? See, our fears expose our idols. Whatever you fear losing the most is is what you value and love the most. What you think you can't live without has become your God. And if you're anything like me, your fears reveal all sorts of idols. Because my heart is, is full of all sorts of mixed priorities and terrible fears. I'm a mess. Because my goals are not God's. What's God's goal? Well, twice in our passage, he calls his people disciples. Did you hear that in verse 13 and 17? Uh, a, A disciple is a student or a follower studying something. And so a disciple of Jesus is somebody who is studying Jesus. A student of Jesus. And verse 40 tells us that the end goal of this, when he is fully trained, a disciple will be like his teacher. That's the goal of the Christian life, to be like Jesus. That's the destination. That's the goal. But It's here that caution is needed. There are ways you are called to be like Jesus, and there are ways you are not called to be like Jesus. You are not called to be the uncreated creator of all things. You're not called to be the savior of the world, and you are not called to be the object of worship. Jesus is unique and alone in these things. The Bible tells us how we are supposed to be like Jesus. Colossians says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In knowledge. One of the ways you're called to be like Jesus is to have the mind of Christ. You're called to take every thought captive to God's word to God's truth. You're called to reject all lies and believe only truth. Ephesians gives us another way we're called to be like Jesus. It says, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. You're called to love what is good and holy and pure. You're called to discern good from evil and give yourself only to what is good. But our hearts, if we're honest, are desperately wicked and give themselves to all sorts of impure pursuits. Knowledge, holiness. There's one more way that the Bible says we're called to be like Jesus. In the beginning, he said, Let's make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion. God gave us a power. Strength. But it was meant to be used in the service of God and others and not self. You have a strength that you, you must every day decide how you're gonna to use. To serve yourself or to serve God and to serve others. And the temptation will ever be before you to use your strength, your power for your glory and not God's. You can hear how all three of these things, knowledge, Holiness, dominion are, are uh, echoed in the great commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all of your mind, all of your heart, and all of your strength. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this is what it means to be like Jesus, to love God with our mind, our heart, and our life, our strength, and to show that love to others. That's what it is, a perfect love for God, a love for the truth that is so perfect that you are never again taken in by a lie, a love for what is good that is so pure that that anything uh, that that touches on doing something wrong is repulsive to you, and a power so pure that is always used in the service of others and never for your own glory. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) I think this resonates with us. Even if our desire for this is imperfect, we at least want to want this. We know it's a good goal. We know it's the right goal. What we don't know is how do we get there? It's one thing to know where we're headed, what the goal is, what the destination is. It's something altogether different to know how we get there. And so what does that journey look like? At the risk of sounding overly simplistic, the way to get to where Jesus is is to walk the road that he has walked because it ends in the same place. And so from the beginning of our study of Luke, we've seen two things that characterize Jesus, a willingness to suffer even unto death and an absolute unshakable confidence that something better awaits on the other side. He was so absolutely persuaded that the only way to glory was the road of the cross For one of his disciples, he chose one whom he knew would betray him unto death. But we need to be careful that we don't limit all of his suffering to that horrific Friday afternoon at Calvary because his entire life was characterized by affliction. Well, in this world, he was always a square peg in a round hole because he was made for a different world. And this world hated him. And it will hate those who follow him. And so Jesus said things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To to take up your cross is to uh, accept that God has not called you to a life of ease and comfort. He's not called you to preserve your safety or your length of days. He doesn't want you to to value your your physical health above your spiritual health. He won't allow you to find your security in your, your political circumstances. You should feel no less secure if your candidate is in office or in prison, whether you are free to worship or it is illegal. He's not called you to find comfort in your finances He hasn't called you to a white picket fence and a Norman Rockwell existence. He might grant those things, some of them, all of them. He might not, but your hope and your comfort and your security can't be found in them. The destination and the journey aren't unrelated. They're tied together. They're bound together. It's through bearing the cross of Christ that we learn to have the mind of Christ. It's, it's through bearing his cross that we learn to love what is holy and pure over what is pleasant and fleeting. It's, it's through experiencing death and resurrection that we understand what true power looks like. And I mean true power, not the stuff we see in our world, these, these meager acts shown by bullies who just try to control people. I mean true power. That's the journey of the Christian life. This is how we get to the goal of being like Jesus. That's the journey. But it's a journey that's walked in a context, in a community. And that's why, as he calls his disciples to this, he calls 12 leaders from among them. If you've ever been on a tour, especially someplace that might not be particularly safe, the first thing you're going to hear is stay with the group. It's good counsel. It keeps you from getting lost and it keeps you safe. Getting separated from the group is, is a sure way to get lost and off track. But there's something truly unique about this group, this community, the church. Look at verse 13. He called his disciples and chose from them twelve. He didn't call in the experts. He didn't appoint his friends and family to powerful positions. He called leaders out from among those who are being led. God's people are led by equals, not elites. Look at this list that he chose. James and John. Do you remember what they were concerned about right before uh, Jesus was betrayed? Themselves. Can we sit on your right and your left hand in glory? Way to be there. You got Matthews, a tax collector. But to drive the point home on this list, look how it's constructed, where it begins and ends. It starts with Peter, who famously denies Jesus three times to a servant girl at Jesus' darkest hour. And it ends with Judas, whose name would become synonymous with treachery and betrayal. You're not supposed to look at this list and say, well, these are the obvious choices. They're superstars. You're supposed to look at this list and say, these are ordinary guys. That that could have been me. Because then you realize that Jesus uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Beloved, your pastors and your elders and your deacons, they have a high calling, but they are ordinary people. They're called to help you love God with your mind and with your heart and with your strength. But, but they're not rock stars. They're servants. And they're broken sinners like Peter and James and John. Some will prove to be treacherous traitors like Judas. But they're called out from among the people because they're not meant to be seen as as other or special. One of the worst things that you can ever do for yourself or your leaders is, is to isolate and separate them. Oh, you're the pastor, you must not struggle. Or I shouldn't talk like this around my elder. You're an officer. How can you? All you do is you create a divide between yourself and your leaders and you destroy all room for weakness. You erode all opportunities for vulnerability because you expect perfection. How many people set their pastors on a pedestal only to be so discouraged when they realize that they are human And they end up leaving the church, going to another one, looking for a perfect pastor there, only to find out he too is human. That that distance will be a barrier to them serving you because service requires getting close. We see that in verse 17. He came down with them and he stood on a level place. Now I know, of course, in context, this is describing Jesus' descent from the mountain. But Luke knows what he's doing. Remember what John the Baptist said in chapter 3, quoting Isaiah, that every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Jesus did not come to be served but to serve. And he did not keep a safe distance, but he got up close with the people he ministered to. Yes, he came down from the mountain, but long before he did that, he came down from heaven. And he became one of us. He came down to us. And that's the model for leaders in the church, not elites, equals, not stars, servants. They're worthy of the respect due their office. They have a higher calling. They must be qualified, but they are human and they must be allowed to be so. You should neither worship them nor be surprised by their weakness and failures because they're fellow travelers on on the way to the goal of being like Jesus. They aren't the goal. You must remember that if they're called from among you, they're one of you. And they need you every bit as much as you need them. You'll need their forgiveness and they'll need yours. I guess what I'm saying is we're all messy. I've confessed a few of my fears and idols. If we had a few more days or weeks or months, I could go on and share more. Pastor Brian could come back from vacation and share his. The elders could share theirs. The deacons could share theirs. You know yours. You know your fears that control you. You know the idols in your heart that compete for your affections. We all know we're messy. So, where do the messy go? Look at verse 18. Jesus came down to the crowd, and as he did, he came to those who were troubled with unclean spirits. This is how the Bible describes those who spent their time with Jesus and with whom he spent his time. The church isn't this perfect community of people. It's a hospital for souls. It's an island of misfit toys. It's (laughs) that reality that we have to understand. Perfection is the future hope. It is not the present reality. If there's no room for weakness, if there's no freedom to be broken, It won't make us better. It will just teach us to put on false smiles and say, everything's fine. The church, at least according to God's word, is a place for the troubled and the unclean. It's a place of refuge. It's for the hurting, the weak, people like Peter, people like you, people like me. Now to say it's a, a place for the weak does not mean it's a weak place. Quite the opposite. For it's in the church that Jesus is taking weak and battered sinners and he's remaking them to be like him. And that takes power. Look at verse 19. All the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. The church is special because it's where Jesus is found and Jesus is powerful because Jesus brings healing, because Jesus brings hope. And when a disciple is fully trained, he will be like Jesus. Like I said, I love passages like this because they remind me that no matter how weak and messy I am, I belong to a God who's at work in me. And I'm reminded just how important the church is. Messy? Yes. But that just means I fit in. Messy and powerful. That power is at work, changing, transforming me, teaching me to die to self and to live to Him, teaching me to be more like Jesus. And that reality is made clear in where we end this morning. Each, and where we end each worship service, really where everything ends with Jesus in his image. The bread and the wine are images, they're pictures of Jesus and what he has done, his body and blood given in death on the cross. And as we receive the bread and wine, we're saying that, that we want who he is to reshape us and define us. Jesus and me, that, that's the goal, that's the hope. And that's also the promise. As surely as you eat the bread and drink the wine, you have God's promise that he finishes what he starts. That one day you will be fully trained. That one day you will be like your Savior. And even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we are weak and we are needy. And yet we fail to pray and to admit our need. But you did not wait for us to ask. You came to help. You came down to serve. You came down to us. And you've given us the church. It's messy and imperfect and it is powerful. Because it's in the church that we touch Jesus and he touches us and we find healing. And there we are made more and more like our master. And that is the great hope. That is the great goal. May we one day be fully like him. Change us day by day and help us to love as we have been loved, to serve as we have been served. To be, with, We ask that you would be with our pastors and our elders and our deacons, both present and future. May they humbly serve, not as elites, not as superstars, but as fellow patients in the hospital for souls, your church. We ask these all.